Hi, travelers. You can listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Go ahead and check out the description of this episode so you can find the link to our link tree, get access to all of our socials, as well as our YouTube channel so you can watch all of our episodes in full. Okay, heading south, bringing on Chip Brown, a reporter for Longhorns uh, 247.com, writer for uh, Longhorns 247.com, or excuse me, Horns 247.com. I thought I'd get that wrong. And then uh, on the radio, on the YouTube, uh, 1 to 3 on Texas Sports Unfiltered, uh, 1 to 3 Central Time. Is that right, uh, Chip? Yes, All right, sir. Chip. Well, had to have you on. Excited to talk to you. Texas the Longhorns, obviously in the playoffs, coming up in about you know end of the year, about like three weeks from now, facing off against Washington, uh, rematch from last year's Alamo Bowl, Alamo Bowl, excuse me, when Texas did win twenty-seven to twenty. Um, Washington has won four of their last, you know, the last four games. Washington has won by one score in the last seven of the nine games. Washington has also won by one score, and now the Texans open up with minus four favorites. Before we get into that game, though, Chip, I want to break down just the journey that the Longhorns had to get to this point so far. Obviously, we're outside looking in for majority of the season, and then the last final rankings, they did find themselves in that three seed. What do they have to do the last, you know, three, four weeks of the season to ensure that spot in the playoffs? You know, who had to lose in front of them? What did they have to do? Obviously had a great last two weeks of the season, put up 47 against Texas Tech, 49 against Oklahoma State in the Big 12 playoff game. But what else did that team really have to do to kind of ensure their spot in the playoffs heading into the end of the year here? Well, they had to look like a a 12 and one conference champion and not, not something that was leaking oil and, sputtering and coughing across the finish line and you know obviously Quinn Ewers their their uh star quarterback uh is playing with an AC joint sprain in his throwing shoulder it's kind of kind of gone under the radar but he missed games against BYU and Kansas State they had to play their backup quarterback Malik Murphy and it was tough you know those games were they came down to the wire well actually the BYU game did not but the the Kansas State game came down to you know the K-State's decision to go for it uh, in overtime and instead of kicking a field goal to extend the game, um, Texas stopped them game over. And then against TCU, they were up 26 to six and cruising. They kind of, you know, started to play some softer coverage. TCU got hot. And next thing you know, Texas is converting third and 12 to hang on to a 29, 26 victory so at that point things were not looking good but in their back pocket they had that win at Alabama 34-24 back on September 9th um, in Tuscaloosa and that was a hard committee hard college football playoff committee to read but they the one thing they did um, was to you know they honored that head-to-head victory the committee and 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 by gosh they did it at the end mm-hmm. and um and look it's unfortunate that florida state had its starting quarterback go down that they were playing with their third string quarterback in the acc championship game but i think the committee had to make the hard decision they were going to anger somebody yeah, but their their charge was to put the four best teams in in the way that texas finished against texas tech and oklahoma state they looked like the complete team that beat alabama uh, back in september yeah. 
And so obviously for Texas fans, they're ecstatic. It's their first college football playoff berth. Um, and how crazy that they're going to play Washington. This would be, this is, so there were five teams that beat Texas last year. Texas has avenged the first four and now they get a chance to avenge their fifth loss from last year against the Washington Huskies. As you mentioned, Washington beat Texas 27, 20 uh, in the Alamo bowl. And, and so Texas knows what it's up against in Michael Penix jr. And Roma Dunze and Jalen Polk at receiver and Jalen McMillan. So, um, it's it's a tough matchup for Texas because if you're gonna pick a a, a nit with Texas, it's been their pass defense, and I mean Texas has just stuffed the run this year. But Washington doesn't care. I mean they've got a thousand yard rusher, um, you know, but they Dylan Johnson, but they they like to throw it. So this actually plays. Um, you know, to, to Washington's favor and Texas has got 15 bowl practices to get their pass defense cleaned up. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Alamo bowl last year. I think I might've said Texas won that game 27, 20, but thanks for correcting me. I meant to say Washington won that game 27, 20 rematch from last year. It's going to be a uh, Matt. It's going to be a very high scoring game for sure. Both offenses are coming in absolutely explosive right now. Uh, Washington finished up their season with high explosive offense as well. And I already mentioned how Texas, and you mentioned as well, how Texas finished the season as well. 64 point over under currently in Vegas. I think that game has a very big, has a definitely has a potential to reach that number and beyond. Going back to what you said earlier, though, about how the committee looked at their win in Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, and you said they had a hard time kind of reading that. And I want to get your thoughts on why that is. Was it because Alabama was struggling early in the season and Alabama is not the same team they are now. Is that kind of why they were having a hard time looking at that game and reading that game? Well, I think the committee was hard to read, but the one thing, and I'm, I, let me clarify, the committee was hard to read because they had Oregon ahead of Texas and Washington, or excuse me, ahead of Texas and Alabama from the beginning of their mm -hmm. rankings. And it was almost like the committee just believed that Oregon was going to beat Washington in the rematch and they were, were ranking them as such. Oregon had no business being ahead of Texas and Alabama based on wins, number of ranked wins, um, impressive wins. But in the end, the committee did honor that head-to-head -head victory, um, Texas over Alabama at Tuscaloosa at night. And, and so you know, head to head matters. It doesn't matter when it happened. It matters, especially when you go and win by 10 on, uh, on Alabama's field at Bryant Denny stadium. And, um, Alabama was 52 and one against opponents at home in the stretch leading up to that Texas win. So, uh, that win is what got Texas into the college football playoff. There's no doubt about it. Are we, were we concerned when they lost the Oklahoma? I don't want to state an obvious, but um, you know, just Texas and the Big 12 maybe not being as explosive as it used to be, especially on defense. Were we concerned when, when they did lose to Oklahoma that maybe their playoff bids would have been um, over? Yeah, I mean, it's out of your hands mm -hmm. at that point. You're, you're suddenly out of destiny control. And, that, uh, and kudos to Steve Sarkeesian. He told the team 
Okay, every game we have from here on out is a Big 12 championship game. If you want to get to Arlington to play for the Big 12 title, every single game is a Big 12 championship. And the players, uh, I think, repeated that mantra and then lived up to that mantra. And and so this was a team that had trouble finishing um, midway through last year. They were one in six. Yep in true road games under Steve Sarkeesian. Now they've won seven in a row in true road games. So it's a different team. It's a veteran team. They have experienced leadership at every position group. They they believe they're going to win. They've finally learned how to win. Um, and that can be hard for a program that's been up and down and all around and kind of wandering out in the desert for the last uh, 15 years. And, and so this is a team that believes and it's funny because they came into the year steve sarkeesian said at big 12 football media days uh, this team has taken on a john wick mentality and it was and he said we were we've got the biggest target on our back we're we're leaving the big 12 everyone wants to get a piece of us before we leave yep. but we we can fight back you know john wick i don't know how many people have watched those movies but he's a retired hitman who basically comes out of hiding because you know he's seeking revenge so he's got all these people trying to kill him he's trying to kill people and and uh and so the you know the mindset was we need to be on the attack we need to be the hunter even though we're being hunted and and steve sarkeesian said before the season we want to win the last big 12 title before we head off to the SEC and they were able to do it. Let me ask you this question. Um, how crucial is it going to be for Steve Sarkeesian to uh, have a whole month to prepare for this game? Something he's not used to really having, right? Over the last couple of years, uh, his bowl games were a lot sooner than, uh, you know, the end of the year. So how big is it going to be for Steve Sarkeesian to have a whole month to plan? I mean, he's known to be a great play caller. He comes up with really crafty plays and crafty game plans. So uh, compared to like Kellen DeBoer, on Washington's side, how massive and how much of an X factor is that really going to be for Sarkeesian to have a whole month to prepare? Yeah, I mean, I think Steve Sarkeesian um, has shown when he has time to prepare that he can come up with some serious game plans. Um, you know, Kalen DeBoer, however, is the guy who's rolling. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he, they run a lot of similar offense, which I find interesting. They're both really good with the screen game, Kalen DeBoer and Steve Sarkeesian. They both like to take deep shots. And, um, and so I think this is going to be a really interesting matchup for, for, for Texas. Um, it's really about their defense and using this month and these 15 bowl practices to get their defense to play with confidence, because even in the, Big 12 title game, they got beat deep a couple of times. Now, they didn't give up a ton of points, um, but and their red zone defense is outstanding. It's the best in the country. And and so, you know, if you don't score from outside the 20, it gets tough when you're going up against Texas because they do a really good job. But um, Washington is a big strike, deep strike offense. So. I think this is going to be a fascinating matchup. You've got, you know, that month, some say Texas is going to be hurt by that month mm-hmm. off because they were rolling. You know, they had the momentum, they were clicking, 
Quinn Ewers was locked in, just had his best passing game against Oklahoma State, 452 yards. And, and now the month, do they get out of rhythm? I mean, who knows? This is, yeah. this, this is the national championship playoff. So you would expect these players to be locked in and, and ready to go. Okay, we now head to Washington, D.C. Bring on Scott Abraham from 7 News in D.C., ABC affiliate. Um, Scott, how, how you doing? Really appreciate your time. Uh, have that come, you know, have that bring you on, talk all things D.C. sports. Commanders, particularly, we're going to start with them. Get into some, uh, you know, nationals too as well. Um, and hockey on obviously going on right now as well. Ovechkin killing it as always. Getting into all the sports going on in D.C. right now. But like I said, I do want to talk in touch base with the commanders uh this year has been pretty shaky all things considered the commanders did start off pretty hot and of course over these over the second half of the season things have been flaming a little bit despite the new ownership that came in but i do want to ask you with that in mind with the new ownership and rivera obviously not getting the job done in washington what are the fans asking for you know as far as rivera's job I know the season at this point might be a little bit of a wash. It's you know going to be very hard, if not impossible, to make the playoffs at this point. Uh, is the team kind of on the mindset of, hey, let's just wait until the offseason to figure out what, what we're going to do with Rivera? Or are fans really clamoring for him to get fired now and give another coach uh, a chance to see what he can do these, you know, these next four or five games, these last four or five games of the season? Jared, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Glad to be on your program. Uh, in terms of where the fans are at right now, there, there's just a lot of frustration because uh, it seems like year after mm -hmm. year it's a franchise that's stuck in the mud. This is year number four for Ron Rivera in Washington, and it hasn't gone well uh, for, for Rivera in Washington. Aside from that 2020 campaign where they finished 7-9 and nine and somehow miraculously won the division, hosted a playoff game, not a lot of success. Uh, unfortunately, he's probably going to be gone at the end of the season. And that's what the fans want. They want some change. They want some new blood, a new direction. And it'll be up to the ownership group of Josh Harrison company to figure out what they're going to do in terms of probably hiring a new GM. That GM will probably hire the coach and so on. So I think it's going to be a big house cleaning after the season. They got four games left on the schedule. They're on the bye week right now. And they're just kind of playing out the string here where they're at the Rams, at the Jets, home against the Niners, home against the Cowboys. Not a lot of expectations. They're probably going to finish with a top five draft pick. So in terms of enticing a new GM or a new, or a new head coach to come to Washington to, to lead this franchise, having a lot of salary cap space, having a top five pick in the NFL draft, and a lot of extra draft picks will be enticing uh, for somebody to take over this franchise. Let's talk about the draft pick coming up, though. I mean, I, I've been hearing a lot of different things about Sam Howell. Mm -hmm. uh, some people say he's the guy. Some people say he's not the guy. Uh, what do you think they end up doing with, as you mentioned, this most likely will be a top five draft pick coming up? Uh, yeah, it's this a great question, Jared, because that was one of the big question marks coming into the season is what's Sam Howell going to be like? Is he going to be that guy? Is he going to be that franchise quarterback? I think the jury's still out. I think he's in the conversation at least to be the starter for 2024. It's been a mixed bag for Sam Howell. The good, the bad, the ugly. He's shown glimpses of that. Hey, he can really sling it when he gets outside the pocket. He can make something happen. But then there's other times where he's the most sacked quarterback in the NFL. Uh, he throws a lot of interceptions, turnovers, pick sixes, head-scratching decisions. But that's all to be expected with a young quarterback. So he's in the conversation. I'll say this is 
if Washington is in position to get a quarterback, uh, a Drake May, a Bo Nix, uh, Caleb Williams, you got to look into the future. And if one of those guys will be there in that top five range, you might have to have some serious discussions in that draft room if you're going to bring in another quarterback. Because I think for the most part, people are not sold just yet on Sam Howell after one year. What would be an like? What what else would they get uh, in the draft? What would be their top priority in the yeah, draft so if it wasn't a quarterback? I mentioned that Sam Howell's the most sacked quarterback in the National Football <laughs> League. Right. So you look at the offensive line. The offensive line has been a nightmare at times for Washington, and Howell just doesn't have enough time to throw the football. Sometimes that's on Howell for holding on to the football too long. Other times. It's on the offensive line. So they have to definitely upgrade the offensive line somewhere in the draft. The defense has been a big disappointment. They were expected to be a top 10 defense, and it's been just another nightmare. You know, they traded away Chase Young, Montez Sweat. Linebacking play has been not great. Secondary hasn't been great. So they're going to have to put in some pieces in that defense to, to get that improved. They fired Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator. After that Thanksgiving Day massacre in Dallas. So uh, a lot of pieces they have to kind of implement into this roster. They've, they've missed on a lot of draft picks during this Ron Rivera era. They've mm-hmm. missed on free agent signings during this Ron Rivera era. So they're going to have to play catch up because in terms of talent discrepancy, you look at that game against the Miami Dolphins. You look at that game against Dallas, mismatched, blown off the field. And just the the gap of talent was was alarming. Uh, definitely, and I want to go back to Jack Del Rio, Rio in um, reference to uh, Rivera. Rivera, I mean, what were people surprised that he was the one that was fired and not uh, Rivera? Because I know a lot of people. I mean, as we already alluded to at the beginning of this interview, a lot of people were wanting Rivera fired and not not necessarily Jack Del Rio. Yeah, you could say Jack was a scapegoat or or Band-Aid, in a sense. Got it. What, what fans did want, they, they wanted some flesh. They wanted some blood. They wanted a change, and that was Jack Del Rio. They're going to get their flesh and blood in full at the end of the season when Josh Harris is probably going to clean house. They're just fed up with all the losses and the inconsistencies. And the defense has been, as I mentioned, the biggest disappointment because coming into the season, the big question marks mm-hmm. were on offense. How was Sam Howell going to perform? How was this offense going to look? Not the defense per se, because they had a lot of draft capital on the defensive line. Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Chase Young, Montez Sweat. That was supposed to be the calling card, the strength of the team. And is it on the coaching for having too much of a complex scheme? Was it on coaching, not putting on not putting the players in position to succeed? Or was it simply the players not performing up to their capabilities? There had to have been a fall guy. Jack Del Rio was that fall guy. How, um, I mean, I'm sure the fan base has just been very pleased by the change of ownership, though, uh, so far. I mean, I know it's only been one year, maybe not even even so much one year yet, but um, just tell me overall just, the hype the fans have been having with this new ownership, uh, considering the fact that 
the prior ownership, of course, was not very well liked, as many people would know. So uh, have have fans really been seeing anything so far from this new ownership yet? I mean, uh, as you as someone that covers the team, have you been seeing any uh, positive headway from this new ownership yet? Or is it really just kind of too early to tell? Are they just getting their feet wet right now? Yeah, Josh Harris took over in July and there was initial pop, right? Excitement, optimism. Uh, a new era in Washington, and then the reality kind of hit again where, oh, no, they suck again or they're struggling again where the losses keep piling up. And the honeymoon period is over for Josh Harrison company. Now they want to see change. Now they want to see a head coach, a, a new front office, and pointing this team in the right direction. Uh, Josh has been much more visible than Dan Snyder in the community and engaging with the fan base, which is always a positive. He's put in – uh, a lot of money into FedEx Field, uh, one of the oldest stadiums in the NFL. They're going to get a new stadium down the line, but in order to band-aid it in a sense, they had to put some money into it, put some improvements into it, new sound system, new video boards, uh, give the fan a better experience at FedEx Field. So Josh Harris and company has done that by sinking in uh, an, an eight-figure investment into FedEx Field. So, yep. you know, anything is better than Dan Snyder in the fans' eyes. Uh, because unfortunately the team was in the headlines for all the wrong reasons when Dan Snyder was the owner. And and right now uh, with Josh Harris, you don't have those off the field distractions, which is certainly helpful to the players and the coaching staff where they can just focus on the product on the field. Okay. We now head to Atlanta and bring back on recurring guest Carlos Vendina from 106.3 extra, extra 106.3, the fan, excuse me. And then six, eight, or 106, 106.3, uh, FM and then 680, the fan, uh, the fan, excuse me, in Georgia. It's a, it's uh, a mouthful, Jared. Car- Trust me. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> um we had to get you back on again to talk uh last time we had you on i think it was about like maybe two months ago we talked about uh georgia sports in general atlanta sports in general uh more the pro focus didn't really touch on a whole lot of bulldogs at that time but of course rollings came out this sunday college football playoffs georgia outside looking in now after being the number one seed all year Crazy, crazy stuff. How to get your reactions from this. Get the fans' reactions, what everyone is saying in Atlanta, all the Bulldog fans that live out there. What is it like? I mean, out of all of the snubs, I mean, there were a lot of snubs this year. I mean, Oregon, I think, is better than Washington. FSU, we all know what people are clamoring about. But in your, you know, as trying to be as unbiased as possible, is this the biggest snub out of all the teams that are being left out of this playoffs? I, I think if we're being realistic, uh, I, obviously the Florida state fans are going to say what they're going to say, but because of their injuries and what they look like over the past couple of weeks, you would question whether or not they have a, a functional college football playoff level offense. I think that's mm-hmm. completely legitimate. I think the, the one thing that Georgia fans have been resolute in pointing out is that they had their chance on the field. They made mistakes. It didn't work out yet for a team that outside of one week where Ohio state was number one, uh, when the playoff rankings were out, they were number one in the polls and they were number one in the playoff rankings to drop to sixth uh, was pretty surprising given the history of what's gone on. But uh, again, you had your chance on the field. And after two national championships, it's not like you have a tremendous amount of Georgia fans uh, that are crying foul. It's more of you had your opportunity and it didn't work out. What was the biggest downfall, do you think, in the Alabama game? 
uh, when they when they played this past weekend? Uh, a, a couple of different things. Uh, losing Amarius Mims uh, over at right tackle, who they had had a similar situation happen during the year, and they were able to get through it with the level of competition that they were playing. He had gone down with a high ankle sprain. They got by without him. He's a, he's a definitely a top 15, top 20 type of talent uh, in the upcoming NFL draft. And so when he went down early in that game, there looked to be kind of a resolution of, all right, let's kind of Let's kind of bring it in a little bit. Let's not expose the Georgia tackles, the young tackles, uh, to as much of the of the Alabama pass rush. And I, I think they went a little bit conservative. And so when you do have, a, you know, a fumble, obviously in in your red zone, uh, which ends up resulting in a field goal, and you miss a field goal uh, based off of you know basically backing up for three consecutive plays, that's the game. That's what it comes down to. Every time they've matched up with Alabama, it's come down to a handful of plays. And Georgia recently has made more of them. Alabama made them this time around. Yeah, it's just unfortunate. I mean, we talk, I mean, every single year, pretty much with the college football playoffs, they can't be perfect. P- teams that should be making it happy left out. But it, th- it does still seem interesting and confusing to me because I still would say Georgia probably is one of the top four teams in the country, despite losing to Alabama this past weekend. And, you know, I know it's not that easy. You have to, you know, reward, you know, wins on the field. Texas, obviously, uh, you know, did deserve it. And Alabama did beat Georgia, of course, and Washington going undefeated. And then Michigan obviously being dominant as well. It's just, it, it does seem like this was the, you know, I know next year we are going to the 12 team playoff structure, but it it did seem like this year more than ever, uh, it would have been a great, great year to have it. Cause there's a, I mean, as we just kind of talked about, there's a lot of snubs this year. Well, if I want to be very petty about this and trust me, I'll Mm -hmm. put the, the petty on, I, I, I even wore the sweatshirt, the the Georgia sweatshirt for today. You know, the wife is a Georgia grad. Uh, You can start off by saying, hold on, Texas lost to OU, and OU didn't sniff the playoffs. They were not that kind of a team over in the Big 12. Mm -hmm. You can talk about who's the only team in the top seven who had a home loss by double digits. That's Alabama. Okay? like We can go through this and start pointing out resumes and saying, you lost a neutral site game by three points against Alabama. If you're going to make the argument that Alabama can be in, well, then I think you can make that argument that Georgia should be in based on resumes alone. It's just just your loss. If you're if we're comparing, you know, apples to apples, the Alabama loss in Tuscaloosa is significantly worse than a loss uh, for Georgia to Alabama on a neutral site. Yeah, I mean, I personally am I'm I'm very surprised that Texas ended up making it. Both teams, of course, with only one loss, and like you said, uh, Georgia's loss was much less uh, was less bad than uh for lack of better words than uh texas's loss because like you said it was the neutral field and against an alabama team that has been playing probably one of the best in all of the country over these past you know three four weeks that in the season what do you think about the orange bowl coming up i mean it's kind of an interesting matchup right because we know we just talked about georgia at length they have something to prove uh florida state also obviously has a lot to prove with you know them having a massive massive snub so I mean, what do you think about the orange bowl coming up and do you think there's any possibility that uh fsu might try to boycott the, the orange bowl no and, and here's the reason why uh four million reasons uh, when you are yeah. a playoff team you get six million dollars when you're a new year's six team you get four million so the acc is not turning away nor is florida state going to turn away a $4 million paycheck to go with the rest of the money that goes along with these things. When, when Alabama gets in and they're a playoff team and it's 6 million and Georgia's also a new year, six team, that's 10 million. That's that those, those are going to be in those coffers. So there's no chance of, of any of uh, uh, that kind of silliness. I will point out Georgia opened as a 14 point favorite for this game. So if you want to tell me that FSU deserves an opportunity, 
I'm going to just tell you that they probably would have been a 14, 15, 16 point dog to Michigan or to any of the rest of these teams. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's part of the reason this, this entire committee, their job is to make good television and it hasn't always worked out, but look what's going on. You're going to have Seattle with Washington. You're going to have the Midwest with Michigan. You're going to have the South with Alabama and you're going to have Texas with Texas. They finally have it to where they envisioned back in 2014. They have regional matchups that's going to keep the entirety of the country interested. And so to, to get it now, that's that's what they were looking to deliver, and that's what they delivered this time around. Yeah, I know um, we, we talked about it in the intro of this show, too. I, I think TCU has a bad taste in their mouth. Um, you know, when they lost to Georgia uh, in the national championship, they got blown away by Georgia. And I think they were afraid that they might see the same thing from FSU. So that might have been a lot of the reason why they, they, they kept, you know, Florida State out because they didn't want the same. <laughs> they didn't want a potential same matchup they had uh, against Georgia when they when they got blown away, at, uh, blown, blown away uh, by Georgia. Um, my question, I mean, they had so you mentioned it 2014, the playoffs were created, basically, and. My question for you is they had to have seen this coming. They had to have seen four teams essentially not being enough. Why do you think like they only made it four teams? I mean, for just the length of the playoffs, I mean, these are obviously young kids. They can't endure too much physical, uh, you know, they can't endure too much physical. So what do you think is the reason they only allowed four teams to begin with? Well, it was always going to be Bunny. And that's, that's what was going to drive all of this. I still remember when the playoffs came into into effect. I was uh, I was at SEC Media Days, and it was a huge deal. All right, first year of the playoffs, this is what's going to happen. Uh, and, and it was such a step forward from the old BCS system, where we would just have a computer ranking, and here are the top two teams, and now they're going to play. Uh, that was a step forward from what we had even before, where, you know, when we had, okay, here are all the bowl matchups where – Pac-10 champion is going to head over to the Rose Bowl and the Big Ten champion is going to go over to the Rose Bowl. And if one of them are competing for a national championship, well, they're not going to play any any other ranked team. They're going to play who they're going to play. So it, it's been this gradual move to increase where we're at. And at four, what's been very fortunate for this, this committee until this season is that it's always worked out. We've always had two teams that get in and we have to go search around for, okay, who's number three? who's number four. And that's typically why we've only had, what, maybe two of these matchups, a Rose Bowl between Georgia and Oklahoma and then the Georgia-Ohio State game last year where they've been competitive. Most of the semifinal matchups, uh, semifinal matchups are not. And so uh, it, this just happened to be the one weird year where you had this many Power 5 teams that had a legitimate argument to be in this this uh, this entire playoff. What do you think of the dynamic next year with uh, 12 teams instead of four teams? So would that benefit Georgia? Would that benefit FSU or some of these other programs that didn't get in to the college football playoffs? What do you think of that? First off, I think it sucks. Uh, The the magic of college football is that when I'm sitting over next to my in-laws and uh, my brother-in-law is a Georgia Tech grad, my other brother-in-law is an Auburn grad, and again, my wife is a Georgia grad. It's hilarious in November when Auburn takes that second loss or the third and we go, well, your season's done, you know, and, and enjoy going to Mobile. You know, that's 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 the joke. The problem now is that, yes, we are going to have an expanded playoff and that's going to be great. And, and most of these teams can, can pretty much write their name down. They're going to be in a top 12 playoff. But the first loss doesn't get you out of there. The second loss perhaps doesn't even get you out of there. In fact, you're going to have teams that are going to be nine and three and saying, hey, we're going to the playoffs. And that takes away 
from the integrity of the regular season that we've grown up being used to. Okay, November 16th, guys. Awesome show. Ray Fittipato, recurring guest from Pittsburgh, going to break down the Steelers' season so far. Uh, six and three in the AFC North. Who would have ever thought that? Uh, been winning some ugly games. Going to break down all that with him. Their season ahead and potentially even playoff chances. Or, well, they'll most likely make the playoffs at this point, but playoff, uh, what their outlook of the playoffs is going forward. I mean, again, such a surprising team this year. The Steelers have been, and we'll break it all down with him coming up in a second. But first, though, guys, I do want to talk about another team in the AFC North, the Browns. Just came out Wednesday that the Browns, uh, Deshaun Watson will be out for the rest of the year with that shoulder problem that he's been having. All I have to say on this, uh, I don't really have much else to say, but, I mean, we all know the Browns were going to win games this year through their defense, but Deshaun Watson has actually been playing really well the last two weeks for the Browns. So this is a big hit. The Browns continue to be cursed, and I feel bad for the Browns, quite frankly. I mean, what do you guys think of this news coming out uh, yesterday? Lost him at the right time. Lost him at the wrong time, I meant to say. So he, uh, I mean, he was playing pretty well. And the Browns, I mean, they were they were an interesting team this year. They, they still are with their defense. And then they do have some offensive weapons as well. But the Browns, that's a very, very hard loss for them. Yeah, especially when you combine yeah. the fact that they're already without Nick Chubb for the rest of the season. So you don't have your starting quarterback, you don't have your starting running back. And this is coming after a second half where Deshaun Watson played the best football that he's played in years. I mean, definitely his best as a Brown, 14 for 14 in the second half. That version of the Browns could compete with anybody in the AFC without Deshaun Watson. This is not a Super Bowl contender, unfortunately. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do at quarterback because the answer they could have had was Josh Dobbs. But remember, they traded him to Arizona before the season. I bet they would like to have him right now with what he's doing up at Minnesota. It's going to be P.J. Walker's team, it looks like, the rest of the year unless you know Tom Brady or Matt Ryan or somebody gets a call, which I don't expect to happen at this point. They're going to have to win games with their defense. And so far, that's been working out for them. But this is one of those moves that takes the Browns from – AFC contender right up there with Baltimore and Kansas City to they could be a playoff team but their ceiling is probably maybe win a playoff game and that's about it this is a yeah. devastating blow for the Browns yeah I mean they say defense wins games but only so much you still need offense in the NFL defense for the Browns is the best in the league but like I said it's only going to take them so far and you said Zach even the second half of last week Deshaun Watson was playing well but I even think the first half and then even the week prior to that, he was showing some flashes to be mm -hmm. back to his, uh, you, you know, back when he was a Texan, back in Texas. So, you know, it's a shame. Like you said, Nick Chubb is out too. Something to look forward to for next year, maybe for the Browns, though. I know they, we've been saying that for probably the last 15 years, yeah. but at the Browns, at least Deshaun Watson, he will be coming back, obviously, on that massive contract. Nick Chubb will be coming back too. And if they can kind of take what they built so far over the last couple of weeks, and especially on the defensive side the whole year, I don't know. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but maybe the Browns will be back next year. I don't. We've said that before. Yeah, but this has become a theme with Deshaun Watson. He's been banged up pretty much his entire career. Remember, he missed most of his rookie year with a torn ACL. He's very rarely gone through a season without any form of injury. So maybe this is just yeah. who he is at this point. And, you know, this deep into his career, how much can you count on him elevating his game to the next level? It's a, it's analogous to the Jets too. It's a shame. I mean, such an awesome defense yeah. just being pretty much wasted then let's be honest it's just it's just being wasted i do want to talk about you know a team that well i don't know how the browns have had especially in the afc north by the way with how 
deep that division is because, I mean, the Browns in yeah. a week can go from maybe having a chance to win it to being in last place because the margin is just that thin with the Steelers, the Bengals, and the Ravens. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're going to talk all about that with Ray too, but you're right. I mean, they were definitely in the, in the race with every other team uh, in there. Uh, somehow, even especially if the Ravens were in the, in the race somehow. Uh, let's go to the Bills news, guys. I do want to – one more thing to touch up on on – NFL before moving on to our, you know, college talk here. Ken Dorsey has been fired from the Bills. Offensive coordinator for, for the Bills has been fired. Uh, very bad loss off of Monday night football. I mean, they've lost to some pretty bad teams, guys, this year. Jets, Patriots, Broncos. Josh Allen, let's just be honest, he's playing bad. Like, he's – Josh yeah. Allen is just not playing good football. He leads the league in turnovers and interceptions. And I feel bad for Ken Dorsey. Don't think it's all on him. But what do you guys think about this move? And especially the Bills going forward, sitting here at 5-5 five and five going into next week. There's going to be a new coach. There'll be a new coach next year, in my opinion. Ken Dorsey is just the first one, first shoe to drop. And the next one is probably going to be Sean McDermott after the season. Because I don't think the Bills are making the playoffs with the way the AFC North is playing and the way the AFC is playing in general. Yeah, I just think when you're the Bills, I mean, this this game was a major missed opportunity for them. This has to be one of those games that you win because look at what's coming up. The Jets, the Eagles, the Cowboys, the Chiefs. They have to go to Kansas City and go to Philadelphia, by the way. They still have to go to the Chargers. They still have to go to the Dolphins. Their schedule is just brutal down the stretch. And this is an offense that's very good, but the problem is they turn the ball over too much. Josh Allen, it seems like, is pressing. It seems like he's trying to do too much. Part of that's Ken Dorsey, but most of that is on the quarterback and I think Ken Dorsey's just being used as a scapegoat here I think Sean McDermott's going to be out of a job by the end of this and maybe it's time to accept that this is what Josh Allen is he is the modern day Brett Favre Josh Allen's going to make a lot of great throws and he's going to do things that are spectacular highlights and he's going to show flashes why he's one of the three or four best quarterbacks in football and then he's going to make a couple of throws like what we saw the other night just an incredibly terrible interception near the end of the half to hand Denver three points, not being able to execute a handoff to James Cook. I mean, some of these turnovers are turnovers you don't expect rookies to have at this point. And the Bills are, you know, five and five, and they've lost three games at least because of turnovers. The Jets game, the Broncos game, and they've let a lot of golden opportunities get away, losing to the Patriots. Like This, this is a team that should be near what Baltimore is, what Kansas City is, and instead they're kind of stuck in the mud. And you know, I have confidence in, you know, a team like the Bengals. I still think they've got a chance to make the playoffs. Their schedule is not quite as tough. The Bills schedule, I think, is just too brutal, and things are going just so much off the rails. Outside of Stephon Diggs, they don't really have a consistent go-to offensive weapon. I don't think Buffalo's making the playoffs. Josh Allen might have to might have to say this. Josh Allen might be overrated. What do you think? Um, not yet. I say he's a top five quarterback, but I do not entertain him in any Patrick Mahomes or Joe Burrow conversations anymore. Yeah, he gets a lot more hype because he's so fun to watch. I think people do elevate his game a little Brett bit more just because he is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Brett Favre, like you said, Zach, is an awesome, awesome comparison. I think people think he might be a little bit better than he is just because he's had some breakaway games. And the Bills have been good. He's led the Bills, you know, to the playoffs for the first time and whenever, you know, we saw when he was when he was there. So, and like I said, I think he's just very fun to watch and has had awesome, awesome games where he's battled, you know, Joe Burrow and Mahomes. So I think it's one of those things where his tape and his eye test, I think, make it seem a little bit more, you know, better than he is. But that turnover problem that he has is just massive. Like I said, he leads the league 
currently in interceptions and turnovers. And I know last year that was a big problem for him too. He was definitely on the top of the list when it came to that last year as well. But By the way, I yeah. know it's not about Ken Dorsey, but can we give Russell Wilson and Sean Payton some credit here? This team was 1-5. in five. They were the worst defense in football. Everybody had already buried Russell Wilson, said his career was over. He's beaten the Chiefs, and he's beaten the Bills in two of his last three games. Sean Payton's turned things around there. I don't think they're making the playoffs, but the Broncos are no longer a dumpster fire like they were a year ago. Well, we talked about it with Josh, uh, Josh Dover, uh, like two weeks ago at this point. Cheese it might have been. But he talked about how – uh, the Broncos season has been kind of weird because I, uh, he started out the season really, really well, Mr. Incredible. And then he started to kind of drop off a little bit towards the, you know, week four, week five. And then the defense started to play really, really well when he started to drop off. Yeah. But now it seems like the defense and uh, Wilson are starting to get a little, you know, Russell Wilson are starting to get a little bit better. So You don't know this, by the um, way, but Russell Wilson, touchdown interception ratio, 18 to four. That's pretty damn yeah. good. Yeah. No, I mean – I think Josh's biggest when we talked about when we talked to Josh last week, his biggest point was that we're gonna to get to a point here where Wilson and the defense are starting to play good at the same time. We've kind of had yeah. a seesaw the whole year where one was playing good, one was playing bad, but now they're starting to play really, you know, they're playing good together and they definitely have a chance to still make the playoffs. And I would call it even the Broncos a team that wouldn't want to be faced in the playoffs for yeah, sure. Yeah, how about a couple weeks ago, everybody was mocking NBC for not flexing out of Vikings-Broncos. All of a sudden, that is actually a compelling game now. Yeah. yeah it's no, interesting. I mean, the, that that game, I mean, sure, there might be games to flex out in the future, you know, primetime otherwise, but the Broncos and, and Vikings, not a bad game. No. Not a bad game on know. Sunday Night Football. Okay, heading south talking to Jamie Say, sports director, WKMG in Orlando. Jamie, had to have you on. Orlando Magic doing very well. One of the most fun teams to watch in the league. We'll get to that in a second. But overall, I wanted to ask you just what has been their success? I mean, what has been the thing that you would pinpoint the most on just why they were able to be, just have just have this bounce back year that they've had this year? I mean, one of the worst teams in the league for the last decade. Um, and now they find themselves, they were second in the East, um, yep. not too long ago. Now, you know, as we re- record today on Thursday, they they're fourth, but still again, rolling and playing one of their best balls they played in the last decade. Like I just said, and what has been like the thing that you would pinpoint as has been leading to their success, uh, you know, this, this year so far, you know, I think what it is, it, it's, it's probably team chemistry. Um, they all get along really well. And it seems like they've accepted their roles. Each, each player on that team has a role and they're willing to do it. Like Paolo Bancaro is obviously, you know, going to be a guy. He's going to be a guy that's going to take the shot at the end. Franz Wagner is obviously one of their best players too. Offensively, he could be a shot. He could be a guy that takes the shot at the end. And the other guys are good with that. Um, the rest of the guys, you know, have their roles, um, and they're really satisfied with it. You know, their third leading scorer is Cole Anthony and he's coming in off the bench. This is a really young team and they play with a lot of energy and hustle and effort. So, you know, I think it's the chemistry, the fact they all get along, um, and they're building a really good culture there. And this year, um, as opposed to maybe year one under Jamal Mosley, when, mm-hmm. when the team was really young, you know, they believe they can win any game that they play. 
Um, a year ago, that wasn't wasn't the fact. A year ago, 26 games in, they were 6-26. and 26. 26 games in now, they're 16-10. and 10. Um, So I think, I think there's a belief there that if they play hard and they stick to their principles of defending, they believe they can win any game. And I think they've kind of caught the league by surprise a little bit, you know, at the outset. And now teams are much more aware that they have to, you know, they're, they're going to get a good effort from the magic every time they step on the floor against Orlando. No, it's and you mentioned the the team effort and the, the team mm-hmm. coming together and all having that same common goal. I mean, you mentioned uh, Cool being the third leading scorer, or the third best scorer on the team, and I think Pablo is probably the most, the highest leading scorer on the team. And I think he mm-hmm. has less than twenty one points a game, averaging less than 20, 21 points a game. So everyone is scoring on this team. I mean, Mo Wagner and Cole Anthony—they've been playing amazing off the bench. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the uh, six fans of the year will probably come from Orlando, whether it be Mo Wagner or Cole Anthony. But that's been one of the things, like I said, when I introduced this interview, just Orlando, not only playing well, but just one of the most fun teams to watch in the league right now. I mean, yeah, they're always constantly in motion, cutting to the, you know, cutting to the basket all the time. I mean, the, the ball flows, flows around so well with the team and you can really just tell they have that chemistry when they, when they play every night. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of basic basketball. It's like good things happen when you share the ball and you look for the mm-hmm. best shot. And that's something that head coach Jamal Mosley has really instilled in this team. And I think he hammers that home offensively all the time. And when they don't win, it's when the ball movement stalls or they're forcing shots because maybe they get behind. You know, they just lost to money. You know, I mean, they're on a three-game skid right now. They lost to the Celtics twice and, and the Heat. Um, and when you look at the Heat game, you know, they fell behind uh, by a lot in the second quarter. Uh, you know, the Heat just kind of exploded. Uh, you know, the Magic's three-point offense or defense wasn't very good, and it, and it impacted their offense. And they're, then they're kind of forcing up some things um, or missing shots. But it's like when they're sharing the ball and when they get back to their principles, Jamal Mosley always talks about their principles of sharing the ball, looking for the best shot, and getting after it on defense, you know, that's when they believe they have any shot to win. They know, though, that they can't take a moment off in the game. You know, they're just right. not there. You know, they're not a team that's capable of, you know, falling behind by a lot and making some explosive fourth quarter run uh, to win the game. So they play hard from start to finish. You know, they're going to play hard from start to finish. And I I think that's part of the culture that Jamal Mosley has instilled. He's been a great coach since he started uh, here a couple of years ago. He's in year three right now, and he's got these guys playing as one collective. And it it has to do with, you know, what he preaches in practice and what his assistants help instill there. You know, and he's a really good coach for a young generation and this is a young team and it seems like he's super relatable to these guys and they play hard for him and each other. I kind of want to go off something you just said. I mean, it's, it's funny with the magic because you can, you know, based on the talent that they have, um, you can almost make an argument that there is a small margin of error for the team, but then at the same time, they also like lead the league in turnovers, don't they? I mean, one of one of the highest turnover prone teams in the in the, yeah. in the NBA, and that's because they pass the ball so much. And they like you were just saying, Jamie. But it's funny because like it, it, one way it's like you can you can kind of say they 
don't have a margin of error, but at the same time, they turn the ball over a lot. So that might not be true either. So like, what do you think about, I mean, what is your thoughts on them having that small margin of error with the talent that they have? Yeah. I mean, you know, turnovers is, have been an issue, uh, you know, for the last, I mean, mm-hmm. since year one of Jamal Mosley and he knows it, the team knows it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's just, they played some good teams, you know, that get after it on defense that, you know, put their hands in the lane and stuff like that. And, and uh, sometimes, you know, they force a bad pass and everything like that. But yeah, I mean, when they're low turnover, they usually win, you know, I mean, when they're not giving the ball away, you know, they usually win. So that's something, that's something they have to correct. But also I want to point out their starting point guard, Markel Fultz has been uh, out of action for uh, probably like six, six weeks or more. So, you know, so I think, I think that's something, you know, like they're starting, you know, Markel has some knee tendonitis. We're not sure exactly when he's getting back on the court, but he's working his way. Um, So, you know, they've started a rookie at point guard, uh, you know, in, in these last couple of weeks and Anthony black, um, you know, their lottery pick and, um, and then you've got multiple guys handling the ball, like Jalen Suggs will handle the ball a little bit too. Cole run the point off the bench and stuff like that. So, you know, so they don't have that, that, that guy. So I think when Markell comes back, that will cut down on the turnovers. And then it's just about, you know, how he kind of matriculates back into the system when he's, when he's fully healthy. But um, it was interesting. The magic last year started five and 20 you know, and then six and 20. And it was because Markel uh, was injured at the beginning of the season. He had broken his toe. He comes back and they basically have a winning record the rest of the year. Um, And like, you can point to his return to the magic playing better. So I, I think that's part of it. And then, okay. So then, but they've still been winning basketball games despite their turnovers. It's just a testament to how hard they play on defense. I think. And, uh, you know, getting back in transition when they turn the ball over, you know, they, they make a concerted effort. Um, and it's just a total team approach. I mean, not only has Mark Elvin injured, you know, Wendell Carter, they're starting uh, forward center. He just got back last night after missing six weeks. And uh, Goga Batazzi filled in for him. And he, and he was a really good defensive guy and, you know, would have a couple of 13-point games too. So, you know, it's been really again, collective uh, on the part of this team. Uh, how is, I mean, Markel Fultz is just, I mean, just to kind of explain it. I know he's been having a lot of injury issues the last couple yeah. of years, but it sounds like Markel Fultz has kind of found a resurgence in Orlando. Oh, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia, you know, yes. so we all know how the Philadelphia fans feel yeah. about Markel Fultz, unfortunately, but is he kind of flying under the radar in Orlando? It's, and are people not really giving him enough credit for having this, uh, like I said, resurgence that he's having? Yeah, perhaps around the NBA, um, mm-hmm. they, you know, he, he has gone under the radar. And, and, and yeah, he's, he's missed time. He's missed time with injuries. But when he's out there, he's a game changer for the Magic. I really enjoy Markel. He's, he's a nice, he's a nice young man. I mean, <laughs> and I say he's just a nice, good person who will do whatever the team needs him to do. I mean, I'm sure he's more frustrated than anybody that he's missed so much time. But the one thing he's done is he works really hard to get back so he's ready from the jump when he gets out there. So I'm sure, you know, this setback has been really frustrating for him. Um, But, you know, he doesn't let that impact the team. Um, But, yeah, you know, he's – 
he's a good point guard and um he makes a difference when he's out there on the floor and and really the magic didn't get him for much when you remember the trade with the sixers you know it was gosh i think it was what 2019 you know 2019 after um and and they gave up jonathan simmons for him and and i think like a second rounder and he's blossomed into a reliable starter and so they're they're anxious you know i know i know they want to get him back. Everybody likes Markel on the team too. Everybody likes Markel in Orlando. Um, you know, he, he can, he makes some things look effortless, you know, in, yep. in terms of his ball handle and, and, uh, his court vision and the way he, he feeds the guys. So, you know, when he gets back and if he's fully healthy, you know, I think he'll be a big difference. Um, and the magic have played well without him, you know, I mean, because yep. Franz Wagner can run a little, point two you know kind of at the point four or two so that there's some ball handlers but when markel comes back he'll be a difference okay let's finish the show intake and outtake of the week zach what is your intake of the week my intake of the week this last saturday of college basketball one of the best regular season days in recent memory you talk about arizona purdue that game lived up to the hype alabama creighton lived up to the hype kansas indiana was a great game kentucky north carolina was a great game it felt like the first round of the NCAA tournament because we had so many big-time matchups. And I think you look at the top of college basketball this year, you've got Purdue with Zach Eady, of course, trying to bounce back after losing to a 16 seed last year, but they're really good. Uh, Kansas is very good, maybe the best starting five in the country. Houston, we know how tenacious they are defensively every year. I don't think this is going to be a year that we're going to have a whole lot of Cinderella's as far as nine seeds or you know anything like that making the Final Four. I think you're going to see real blue-blood contending teams this year. I think the top of the sport has been fantastic so far. Yeah. My intake, um, Eagles having Matt, Matt Patricia take over defensive play calling duties going forward. Uh, Sean Desai will remain as a defensive coordinator, uh, but Matt Patricia will be taking over the actual play calling duties for the defense. Patricia has remained largely in the shadows pretty much all season. I mean, he's been fired as a defensive coordinator or he has been fired as a senior defensive assistant this offseason, but then, of course, now is uh, going to be helping with the play calling duties on the defense going forward for the Eagles. He hasn't been made available to talk to reporters despite requests. Uh, to say, though, has spoken every week as the coordinator always does. The Eagles allowed 33 plus points in three straight games for the second time in team history. Uh, the last time was in 1967. Uh, they're. they're 40, uh, 428 average yards per game allowed since week eight is the most in the NFL over that span as well. So defense for the Eagles has been absolutely abysmal. Of course, they're on a bad stretch of games currently. Um, but yeah, the Eagles are definitely in a bad uh, bad shot uh, off uh, defensively speaking, and Matt Patricia will take over play calling duties um, going forward for the team. So yeah, let's see if that can do anything to help. Uh, Justin or Zach, what is your outtake of the week? My outtake of the week: Demonte Casey being suspended the rest of the season for a dirty hit on Michael Pittman during the, the Steelers Colts game on Saturday. I guess he's been a repeat offender; he's been fined five previous times. So this is what's going to happen when you play dirty. I mean, you're, you're going to get suspended. And look, I, I know that they put the 100 percent of the onus on the defender, and I don't know if that's necessarily right. And I think Gardner Minshew kind of set up Michael Pittman with an inaccurate throw. But you just can't go headhunting, and when you do that, you're going to get suspended. I don't mind it, only because we've seen you know Vontez Burfecht do this before. We've seen guys 
uh, just playing helmet head football mm-hmm. at this point. So, yeah, Demonte Casey being suspended the rest of the season does not surprise me. Yeah, I'm going to go um, my outtake. And going back to what you were saying with your intake, Zach, UConn, men's basketball, uh, they should be uh, number one rated, I think. I mean, UConn is being underrated once again. The team has been dominant all year. Uh, they're deserving of the top spot, in my opinion, but they did lose that close game to Kansas, unfortunately. Uh, that's kind of why it's keeping them out of the you know the, the top one or two spots. But currently now, of course, it's Purdue and Kansas at one and two makes sense, but UConn should be the next team up for sure. Um, I don't think Houston deserves to be ahead of UConn currently as the standings go. I think UConn has been pretty dominant all season long. And like I said, they once again find themselves underrated, um, you know, going into – uh, you know, almost about halfway through the season so far. Um, yeah, so that, that's my um, my outtake. Kind of just UConn, I think, should be maybe a one or two seed, if not at least three. Four is right now for right now, but, um, you know, where they're at right now is fine. But I do think UConn deserves to be uh, at least like a, a three seed or if yeah. not even one or two. All right, good show. Be back Thursday. We don't know. We might not be able to make it, Zach, but uh, me and Justin will hold down the fort and then we'll head into the holiday with uh, best of shows on Saturday and then next Tuesday as well. But until then, uh, take care and keep on traveling.